I am going to tell you a story that a powerful state doesn't want you to know about tens of thousands who have disappeared. Once they get into the hands of the military, they will be tortured brutally. It's a story so dangerous to tell that for some, it's meant ending up on a kill list. She was seen as a dangerous political actor and a threat to Pakistan's security, but she was a local hero. The Kill List, a six-part investigative podcast, available now. Get early access to episodes at cbc.ca slash listen, or by subscribing to the CBC True Crime Premium channel on Apple Podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Every time the radical left Democrats, Marxists, communists, and fascists indict me, I consider it a great badge of honor because I am being indicted for you. They want to silence me because I will never let them silence you. And in the end, they're not after me, they're after you. I just happen to be standing in the way. If you are looking for a front runner for one of the biggest stories of the year ahead, the U.S. election is probably a safe bet. That was former U.S. President Donald Trump speaking at a rally in December. He faces 91 felony counts in four major criminal cases. He also has a giant lead over his rivals for the Republican nomination, setting up a potential rematch this November between Trump and his Democratic rival, U.S. President Joe Biden. To help us look at the year to come in U.S. politics, I'm joined by three top political journalists. Molly Ball is the senior political correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Barton Gelman is a staff writer with The Atlantic magazine. And Aaron Blake is a senior political reporter for The Washington Post. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Molly, let's start with Donald Trump's legal issues. This could take up our entire conversation. So understanding that, just briefly, I guess, give us a quick rundown of what he's up against. Uh, that's right. It is a lengthy list. Uh, he's facing uh, 91 criminal charges in, I believe, five different state and federal cases uh, across the map. Uh, he is also embroiled in some civil proceedings, and he has uh, litigation before the Supreme Court involving whether he can stay on the ballot in two states that have tried to take him off the ballot, as well as some immunity claims regarding the federal case brought by Special Prosecutor Jack Smith and some other matters. So at every level of the court system, essentially, and for a variety of alleged uh, criminal and civil offenses, uh, Trump has a very full calendar completely outside of the campaign. When do we know about the first cases? When, when are they going to be held? These are serious matters, right? That's right. And uh, the calendar is a bit up in the air. And I must say, I'm not entirely current on it. The Supreme Court declined to uh, expedite uh, the immunity matter uh, about a week ago, but is still expected to rule rather quickly on uh, on on some of the most pressing issues so that some of the cases can move forward. Uh, There could be a trial as soon as March, I believe, in one of the cases, but Mm. it all depends on a lot of pretrial motions and, and the scheduling of these things can be very fluid. So we do expect that there could be at least one trial before the election. Uh, but his legal team also is trying to push the cases out uh, out beyond November. And there have been allegations that, indeed, the main reason he's running for re-election is in order to uh, get himself off the hook from these liabilities. Brian Gelman, we heard at the beginning of our conversation some sounds from the rally that Trump held in December. How have these court cases impacted his campaign so far? So far, they have only increased his popularity with his base and cemented his place as front runner uh, for the Republican nomination. Uh, every time he's uh, accused by what he characterizes as the deep state or 
the evil Biden administration, uh, he bumps up a little bit in the polls and his rivals for the nomination, all save one, are unwilling to say that the legal liability, the, the criminal charges against him disqualify him from the presidency. In fact, they're forced into the position for fear of Trump's base of defending him. Help me understand that. Why would they not, why would Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley and others not say he could go to prison? Does that not disqualify him for, for being president or running for president? Why are they not saying that? You would think that someone apart from Chris Christie, who's way back in the pack, would say that. Uh, but they are trying to appeal to the same core constituency that Trump is. And that constituency is fiercely loyal to Trump. Uh, it's maybe one-third of the of the voting population, but it is unbudgeable on Trump. Mm. Uh, I say unbudgeable, but we don't know what would be the impact of actual convictions in a criminal case. It is possible that uh, that his supporters are taking these to be, uh, pardon the pun, the trumped-up charges uh, that have no merit, and that if a jury of their peers were to convict Trump, that it would have an impact on some of them. But uh, so far, not at all. Aaron Blake, what happens if Donald Trump has wrapped up the nomination for the Republican Party, but then gets convicted at one of these trials? I mean, can, can somebody who is convicted still run for president? Uh, yes, you can You can run. Um, there are legal questions about um, qualifications. Um, I would say that to, to Barton's point, um, the poll suggests that there is a small number of Trump supporters who say that a conviction would be disqualifying for them. It is not a large number. The vast majority of Republicans say they would still vote for Trump if he were convicted of a crime. Um, but we are talking about American elections, which are often decided by very small margins. And so if you look at the polling and, and a number of different pollsters have have tested this and asked, you know, what would your vote before a conviction be like and what would a vote after a conviction be like, um, that would lose between five and double digits numbers of his supporters and probably swing the polls to to President Biden. Now, the question from there, of course, is whether people are being honest and whether that would actually wind up being the case. Mm. I'm a little skeptical that it would be for all of them. Uh, but even if a, a small number of people wind up changing their minds because of, of a conviction, uh, you could see a, a different result in the election. Molly, just finally on this, on the procedural part of it, I mean, you mentioned Maine and Colorado both removed Donald Trump from the primary ballot, saying that his actions before and after the January 6th riots at the Capitol disqualified him. He's appealed the Maine ruling, expected to appeal Colorado as well. Could he be kept off the ballot in some states? It's certainly possible, uh, although I think most people expect that the Supreme Court will not uh, allow that to happen and will restore him to the ballot in both of those states. Uh, but look, I think this whole conversation underscores the extent to which we are really in uncharted ter territory in this election. We are looking at questions that, that courts have never considered, that the American electorate has never considered, possibilities like the one you just asked. Can a person be convicted of a crime and then be elected president? Uh, what if he you know, is sent? 
sentenced to to, to prison. Uh, these so so this is going to be very much a, 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 an election like nothing we've ever seen before because none of these things have have happened before. Barton Gelman, there are real fears in some quarters that Donald Trump is going to undermine the justice system and exact revenge on political opponents if he is indeed elected. The Atlantic's uh, package for January and February is if Trump wins. And you wrote uh, about the justice system in there talking about how we know what he will do with that power because he has said so out loud. What has he said out loud that he would do if he won? Well, he, in his usual elliptical way, uh, because he seldom makes a clear declarative sentence, uh, he has said that lots of people deserve to be jailed. Lots of people deserve to be uh, prosecuted and punished and, in one case, executed. Uh, and he's listing uh, his political opponents. Uh, some of them are uh, Republicans, uh, and some of them are Democrats, beginning with uh, President Biden, who he said he would appoint a special prosecutor uh, uh, to charge uh, and jail and, and uh, quote-unquote, all the corrupt Bidens, uh, including his son Hunter. Uh, but he has said that about his own former Attorney General, Bill Barr. He said it about his former uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley. Uh, besides turning the Justice Department against his political enemies, uh, he would certainly uh, take available steps to remove the criminal charges against himself. Uh, he could almost certainly cause all of the federal charges to go away uh, quite easily by instructing his Justice Department to drop the cases. Even if he had already been convicted, he would be uh, mid-appeal by the time of the election and the inauguration. And if he won, the Justice Department uh, under Donald Trump could make what's known as a confession of error to the appeals court and say, we no longer wish to defend this conviction. Mm. Uh, and we ask the judge to vacate that conviction. Uh, and the courts almost certainly would go along with that because uh, they seldom try to continue a case that the prosecution is uh, is dropping. And of course, there's the controversial question of whether he could pardon himself. And although that is highly contested, uh, I'd say pretty much equally contested uh, among legal scholars, uh, some think he can pardon himself, some think he can't. In practice, he could because uh, there is nobody who would have standing to challenge a self-pardon other than his own Justice Department. Why should we take him seriously in terms of what he said? I mean, he was asked in that interview famously, would you be a dictator? And he said he'd be a dictator just on the first day. People might laugh at something like that, but why should we take what he says seriously? Because he has done or tried to do uh, nearly everything he has he has promised in the past. Uh, and he is motivated by self-interest, uh, by a quest for revenge. I think those two things in that order. Uh, and it is clearly in his interest to go after his political enemies. And he believes or says he believes that he's been singled out uh, for political punishment by his political enemy. Mm. And he's fully entitled to do the same when he takes power. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. 
Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. He is not the nominee yet. The first Republican primary is in New Hampshire, and that's three weeks away. Have a listen to Trump speaking at a rally in New Hampshire last month, talking specifically about immigrants. You know, when they let, I think the real number is 15, 16 million people into our country, when they do that, we got a lot of work to do. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. Aaron Blake, Joe Biden's campaign compared to those words to words of Adolf Hitler. Why? Uh, well, this, it's because this is something that Hitler said in, in Mein Kampf repeatedly. Uh, this was a, a, you know, something that he used um, to argue that the Jews were insidious and, and needed to be dealt with. How deliberate do you um, think Trump's use of language is? He said subsequently that he hasn't actually read Mein Kampf, but how, how deliberate and intentional do you think that language is? I mean, I think you only have to look at the fact that he initially used this language back in September and October. Um, it was pointed out at the time that there were similarities to how Adolf Hitler talked about these things. And Trump has proceeded to use this language since then. So, you know, I think the question with Trump is often, you know, does he mean it? Is he trying to be provocative? Um, I think in this case, at least, he has made a concerted decision to press forward with a decision that has that historical parallel um, and, and is inviting people to read into that what they want to. Molly Ball, the Democrats are drawing a clear line between Donald Trump and their candidate, Joe Biden. Um, Joe Biden is... In many quarters, deeply unpopular, something like a job approval rate of 39%. What are the concerns that the Democrats have as they head into this campaign with Joe Biden as their candidate? Oh, there are a lot of concerns, chiefly the fact that, you know, in, in most polling averages, uh, Donald Trump now has an advantage. Uh, and Biden, as you mentioned, is is dismally unpopular, more unpopular, uh, in fact, than, than Trump was at this point in his term. Uh, Biden is uh, the oldest candidate ever to run or serve as president and would be even older uh, as he looks toward a second term. Is that a, ge- is that a genuine of- factor, the age issue? It's an enormous factor. In fact, it is the factor that most voters cite as their main qualm about Biden. Uh, So when you look at Biden's unpopularity and then pollsters proceed to ask, well, why is it that you disapprove or why is it that you don't like him? It's the number one thing people cite. I think it's the number one thing that people associate with him who are sort of non-political, you know, regular voters who maybe don't pay attention to these things on a day-to-day basis and aren't following uh, the moves of the campaign. Their main impression of the president is that he's old and that he acts old you know he 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 sort of shuffles around and sometimes has trouble uh putting words together in public and now the president and his allies will tell you that has nothing to do uh with his competence or his mental state or his ability to do the job and they would point to uh what they consider a very successful uh first three years in office and a number of uh accomplishments that he's racked up and that's all fair enough uh but this but it is a major concern that voters have uh they're not particularly convinced uh by 
by his record. Uh, they are concerned about the economy, particularly uh, the persistence of, of higher prices since he became president. Uh, and and so, you know, the Democratic Party goes into this race uh, with a lot of anxiety about their candidate. And in fact, in, in many polls, even a majority of Democrats say they wish that they had uh, a different candidate uh, as their nominee, even though uh, you know, Biden is, is, you know, expected to easily win the Democratic primary and does not have any serious challengers. Aaron Blake, how energized is the Democratic Party? Is the prospect of another four years of Donald Trump enough to motivate Democrats to come out and to vote and to rally around, as Molly has described, an unpopular candidate? I mean, that that's the hope for the Democratic Party. Um, right now, that's not really showing up in the polls. There is not a whole lot of enthusiasm about this election. Um, Donald Trump has been a significant vote mover for both Republicans and Democrats, but more so for Democrats. The, you know, he won in 2016, but he lost the popular vote. Pretty much every election since then has been better for Democrats. So, so Democrats will have some hope that there will be some kind of a rallying effect that people will turn out. They'll remember what happened during Trump's four years and and show up strong but at least right now there are significant um and generally loyal democratic constituencies like young people uh, like hispanic voters like black voters that are not um at least according to the polls mm. supporting democrats in the numbers that they have in the past many of the many of the those many of those young people barton have been concerned about um biden's approach to the israel hamas war how, how big of a deal is that in terms of impacting the support of the people that he needs to, to show up and vote it's a big deal in the polling right now. Uh, I personally doubt that it will be a big deal when the time comes for the general election. Uh, and uh, I would give a slightly different take than, than Aaron, I think, on the rallying effect of Trump. Uh, typically, when you have an incumbent running for president, uh, the political experts will call that uh, a referendum, that, that election. It's a referendum on on your opinion about Joe Biden. Uh, uh, but in this case, uh, and because of the unique political qualities of Donald what they call a choice election, where you have to decide one or the other. And I believe there will be a powerful rallying effect uh, for Democrats around Biden when confronted with the actuality mm. of another Trump presidency. Uh, I think he will continue to be um, at least as big a vote motivator for Democrats uh, to stop him as he is uh, for Republicans to bring him in. And Molly, we've already, and we're almost out of time, but we've already seen some of this, right? You wrote about this in the journal when it comes to how the issue of abortion, for example, and access to abortion has played out politically since the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. That's right. And that decision uh, was just uh, about a year and a half ago. So this will be the first presidential election since Roe v. Wade was overturned. And what we have seen in a series of ballot initiatives, as well as the midterm national elections last uh, last November, or I guess it's now November 22 was not last year, <laughs> uh, the year before. Uh, but um, 
But what we have seen is that that decision had a powerfully galvanizing effect across partisan lines. Now, a presidential election is a partisan vote, and that could be a different dynamic. But we've never seen these dynamics interact before. And again, uh, just recently in November, uh, a a ballot initiative uh, putting abortion rights into the Ohio Constitution, that's a state that Joe Biden lost by eight points, uh, but voters approved, uh, took the pro-abortion rights side of that ballot referendum by 14 points. So this is a real unknown factor uh, that, again, crosses partisan lines and that voters uh, are very motivated by generally on the side of uh, protecting access to abortion. Uh, and there are a number of issues like that, right? Mm-hmm. In every presidential election, the biggest factor is is unforeseeable events. We don't know what's going to happen uh, in so many ways. There are all of these foreign conflicts going on. Uh, so while we can do our best to prognosticate and look at polls now, uh, November is going to look very, very different. I was going to say, I mean, we only have 30 seconds left. Um, but I was going to say at this point, knowing what you know, is it even possible to predict who's going to win, Molly? Well, I don't make predictions. I'm a reporter and try to keep an open mind. If it's always possible to make predictions, I could predict that the earth will fly into the sun tomorrow, but it's probably <laughs> not going to happen. Uh, we, we might all uh, be happy to be let off the hook from covering Iowa. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I think everyone, all predictions at this point should be taken with a grain of salt. Yeah. Uh, we haven't even talked about the potential for third party candidates, which could be a significant factor this year. Uh, so there are a lot that remains to be seen. And that's why we have reporters. And that's why we are delighted to speak with you about this. And I hope we have the chance to talk again. It is just the first uh, week of January. There's a lot of time left until November, but it will uh, go very, very quickly. Thank you all for being here this morning. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Molly Ball, senior political correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, Barton Gelman, staff writer with The Atlantic Magazine, and Aaron Blake, senior political reporter for The Washington Post. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.